Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hey, Ragers, happy Monday. So this week, I am bringing you an episode that was originally posted on Patreon for the Angry Feminist Book Club. This was actually the last episode that I decided to do for the book club on Patreon, and I chose to cover Sylvia Plath and The Bell Jar. I actually didn't read this book until like last year, which is amazing to me, and I absolutely fell in love with it, and I really enjoyed learning more about Sylvia Plath and putting this entire episode together. So it's a shame that it was just sitting on Patreon and not available to all of you, so I wanted to let you all listen to that now. And while you're listening, just know that I am working my little hiney off on some fantastic episodes for Black History Month. And if you want more episodes like this, you can go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist and you can join the $5 level, which is still called the Angry Feminist Book Club for now, where you can listen to all of the backlog of episodes of a variety of different books that I covered in the past year. Or you can join the $8 Feminist Faves level where you get all of those episodes, plus you get these episodes early and ad-free. You get some extra bonus content, such as a little recap when the main episode is put up. And you get all of my love. (laughs) All right, so here is Sylvia Plath and The Bell Jar. I'll pop in and say goodbye at the end. Let's get into The Bell Jar, and more specifically, its author, Sylvia Plath. As it took me so long to work on this episode, I went through a lot of different varieties of ways that I wanted to talk about this book and tell this woman's story. And how it ended up is that I decided that I am going to share with you the biography of Sylvia Plath because the bell jar is so much about her life. And then when we meet up with the time period that the bell jar takes place in Sylvia's life, we're going to pick up talking about the book again and then continue to speak more on Sylvia's life. So with that, let's get started. Sylvia Plath was born on October 27, 1932 in Boston, Massachusetts. Her mother, Aurelia Schober Plath, was a second-generation American of Austrian descent, and her father, Otto Plath, was from Grabau, Germany. Otto was an entomologist and professor of biology at Boston University who once wrote a book on bumblebees. Sylvia had one brother named Warren who was born in April of 1935. The family moved out of their home in Jamaica Plains to Winthrop, Massachusetts, in a section of the city called Point Shirley. While living in Winthrop, eight-year-old Sylvia published her first poem in the Boston Herald's children's section. She loved writing poetry even as a kid, and she would continue to have poems published in a variety of regional magazines and newspapers throughout the next few years. While she was already known for being a fabulous writer as a child, she was also an award-winning painter. Can we say gifted child? But when speaking of her childhood, Sylvia said that she certainly did not have a happy adolescence, and writing became her escape and her safety net. On one side, I'm a first-generation American. On one side, I'm a second-generation American. And I was brought up on, on the 
northern coast of, of Massachusetts, and my whole childhood was spent on the ocean. I remember the, the very spectacular hurricanes we used to have where my grandmother's cellar would be flooded and there would be sharks washed up in the garden and so forth. And the image of the sea has been with me ever since, even though I've, I've um, been inland for a few years. And I think one always goes back to, to something as vivid and colorful as this sort of experience. And I know that the sea comes into um, a great many of my poems. Sometimes it's just a, a subconscious sea, a sort of flow of thoughts and so on. Other times it's the real sea itself. The week after Sylvia turned eight years old, her father unfortunately passed away of complications following a foot amputation due to untreated diabetes. She was so close to her father, and this was devastating to her. Here's a clip from a documentary that I watched online of her mother speaking of her husband's death. Then, of course, he was sent to the hospital, and he had his leg amputated. The first thing she said, will he have to buy a pair of shoes? And then, of course, when he died, I had to tell the children in the morning that her, her father had died that he wasn't suffering anymore. And uh, Warren rejoiced that I was young and healthy and clung to me. Sylvia just slipped underneath the covers of her bed and said, I'll never speak to God again. For she had been praying every night that her father would be well and would come home. And here's just another clip of Sylvia being asked if she had a happy childhood. Well, I think I was happy up to the age of about nine, very carefree, and uh, I believed in magic, which which uh, influenced me a good bit. And then at, at nine, I was rather disillusioned. I stopped believing in, in elves and Santa Claus and all these little beneficent powers and became more realistic and depressed, I think, and then gradually uh, became more adjusted about the age of 16 or 17. Oh, they just break my heart. In one of Sylvia's final works, Ocean 1212W, she writes that her first nine years had sealed themselves off like a ship in a bottle, beautiful, inaccessible, obsolete, a fine white flying myth. She's very much mythologized her father after he passed away and seemed to long for her father's love for the rest of her life. And though Aurelia seems like a very pleasant woman in the interviews that I've seen, it doesn't seem like she was the warmest of mothers and maybe not the kind of mother that Sylvia really wanted or needed. I'm going to read to you most of a poem that she wrote called The Disquieting Muses. Mother, mother, what ill-bred aunt or what disfigured and unsightly cousin did you so unwisely keep unmasked to my christening that she sent these ladies in her steed with heads like darning eggs to nod and nod and nod at foot in head and at the left side of my crib mother who made to order stories of mixy black shirt the heroic bear mother whose witches always always got baked into gingerbread i wonder whether you saw them whether you said words to rid me of these three ladies nodding by night around my bed mouthless eyeless with stitched bald head Mother, you sent me to piano lessons and praised my arabesque and trills, although each teacher found my touch oddly wooden in spite of scales, and the hours of practicing my ear tone-deaf and, yes, unteachable. I learned, I learned, I learned elsewhere, from muses unhired by you, dear mother. I woke one day to see you, mother, floating above me in the bluest air, 
on a green balloon bright with a million flowers and bluebirds that never were, never, never found anywhere. Faces blank as the day I was born, their shadows long in the setting sun that never brightens or goes down, and this is the kingdom you bore me to. Mother, mother, but no frown of mine will betray the company I keep. This poem speaks of a strained mother-daughter relationship, one where the daughter is a dreamer and a mother who wants her to become the image of herself. I think this is something that a lot of daughters can relate to. Sylvia, who had been raised in the Unitarian religion, experienced a loss of faith after her father's death, and she would remain ambivalent toward religion from then on. She wrote in another poem, Oh God, I am not like you, and your vac is black, stars stuck all over, bright, stupid confetti. Her mom put a diary in her Christmas stocking when Sylvia was 10 years old, and from then on she wrote profusely of her own life and feelings. Aurelia had put one in her son Warren's stocking too, but it was Sylvia who really took to it. She would fill the pages in that book and continued to keep diaries for the rest of her life. Then at the age of 13, she learned to type, and she became incredibly proficient in it. She was able to type 80 words per minute, which maybe to us now would seem normal because we type constantly, but at the time, super strange. I feel like especially for a kid to just know how to type, but then to be that good at it, she described the typewriter as an extension of her body. Sylvia graduated from high school in 1950, and just after graduating, she had her first national publication in the Christian Science Monitor. She began attending Smith College that fall, a private women's liberal arts school, part of the Seven Sister Schools. She lived in Lawrence House, where you will now see a plaque outside her old room, and she became the editor of the Smith Review, the college paper. While attending Smith, she was fascinated by the works of Dylan Thomas and Yeats. She was ambitious and gifted, and was also considered highly sophisticated. This could be due to the fact that Smith worked hard to ensure that their young ladies attending their school acted just like that. Ladies. Each hall or dormitory had a house mother who would set an example for the women in her dorm and correct their decorum when necessary. There was a dress code at the school, and it was expected that the women came to dinner in a dress or skirt. Sylvia liked attending an all-girls college because there was no competition over boys, and she felt that would hold the women back academically. And of course, there was a very strict protocol regarding male guests. No man, not your brother or your father, was ordinarily allowed above the first floor. But there was a tension growing within herself between the commitments she had made for her academic career and her desire to be a red-blooded, all-American girl. In 1953, during her third year at Smith, she was awarded a position as a guest editor at Mademoiselle Magazine in New York City for one month during the summer. And this is where Sylvia Plath and Esther Greenwood's lives collide. So, with what we know about Sylvia prior to this period, let's get into the book. In the summer of 1953, Esther Greenwood, a college student who is a high achiever in academics, wins the opportunity to live in New York City for a month to work as a guest editor with 11 other young women at a New York magazine. Esther and the others stay at a women's-only hotel called the Amazon. While in New York, Esther attends many events and parties put on by the magazine, and though these things should be bringing her joy, she feels numb and dissatisfied. She begins to feel detached from her ambitions, which her boss at the magazine, J.C., does her best to bring back and encourage her. Esther becomes friends with two young women who also won the job in New York, Betsy and Doreen. 
And Esther vacillates between who she's more drawn to, the sweet and wholesome Bessie or the rule breaker Doreen. Like many young adults, Esther is also trying to figure out her personal romantic life, her sex life, and she's unsure whether or not she wants to give into her desire for the expected patriarchal role she has been taught to play versus following her own desires for her future. When Esther returns to Boston, she finds herself rejected from a writing course she had planned to attend for the rest of the summer. This may have been her first ever real academic failure. Instead of furthering her future, Esther was stuck in her mother's home in the suburbs. While she was there, her mental health struggles that began to rear their ugly heads in New York became amplified. She began to have intrusive suicidal thoughts and was overwhelmed by her depression. She stopped bathing, changing her clothes, and lost her ability to sleep, read, eat, or write. She eventually goes to a Dr. Gordon, an unsympathetic psychiatrist who puts her through electroshock therapy, something that was very, very traumatic for her. As Esther's mental health descends further, she tries and fails multiple times to take her life, until one day when she decided to hide in the crawl space of her home and take enough pills to take her life. This puts Esther into a coma for days, but to her family she was missing. She was found days later and taken to a hospital, where she woke up to a horrific sight of herself in the mirror. Once she's stable, they take her to the psych ward of the hospital, where she continues to be paranoid, uncooperative, and suicidal. I know this type, because I was just like her. <laughs> and I actually think of it as being morosely determined. I was incredibly suicidal when I was younger. And I do have to admit that there is... Something about when you've set your mind to it or you just feel so low that you cannot possibly feel another way out. You do feel almost determined to do something about it. And I know it's really hard to hear and it's really hard to talk about, but this is the topic of the book. And unfortunately, Sylvia Plath would lose her life because of this illness. And there are times when those thoughts can become so intrusive and so unbelievably loud in your head that it can be really, really hard to deal with. And on top of that, she was staying in a place that was not conducive to her healing. But by the good graces of goddess, a wealthy novelist named Philomena Guinea decided to sponsor Esther and have her cared for in a private asylum where she was treated with compassion. There she meets Dr. Nolan, who is very healing for her. She encourages her to embrace her independence as a woman. At the end of the book, Esther begins to feel more stable and returns to college, though she knows the bell jar of mental illness could one day descend onto her again. Of course, there's a lot of other stuff that goes on in there. I would love to break this book down fully, but I'm not going to do that this time around. I really want to focus on the things that stuck with me in my head after reading this book and after doing all the research. The bell jar takes place in 1950s America. Think Norman Rockwell paintings, conservative values, and harsh patriarchal structures. This area was a time when women were being shoved back into their homes, and more specifically into the kitchen, and out of the world of work that they had grown accustomed to during World War II. They were expected to embody the ideals of traditionalism with purity and chastity. The main character, Esther Greenwood, is one of the many young women at the time who felt stifled by the role that they were given. The Bell Jar is a coming-of-age story, but it doesn't follow the usual trajectory of childhood into adolescence, but from adolescence into adulthood. 
a time of much upheaval for any person, but particularly for Esther and the author Sylvia. She was struggling with her mental health, which often happens around this time as well. I, like many others, can resonate with Esther, the golden gifted child who grew up to realize maybe she wasn't so great and special after all. In the book, she says that she feels that all of her college achievements have fizzled to nothing in New York, and that she is very still and very empty, the way the eye of a tornado must feel. I feel like it's just kind of like the big fish, small pond, and then that big fish gets put into a big pond, and there's a lot of other big fish, and they suddenly realize that they were not the geniuses that they thought they were, or they weren't as gifted as they thought they were. And I think it's something that a lot of people deal with, especially when they move out and start a career and things like that. And you're like, oh shit, I'm not the only one who's good at this. And this was particularly really difficult for Esther because she spent most of her childhood highly excelling in school, winning grants and awards for her writing from a very, very young age. And when she got to New York, all of those accomplishments begin to feel meaningless. Did it really matter what she did in her childhood? Not as much. She realizes that her ability to win academic accolades does not transfer into real-world success, which I'm sure was terrifying to her. She says... I felt dreadfully inadequate. The trouble was, I had been inadequate all along. I simply hadn't thought about it. I feel like a racehorse in a world without racetracks. Another way I resonate with Esther in this sense was that when she was young, she felt like she had her whole life planned out. Now she felt tongue-tied and doubtful. When I was a kid, I was like, I'm going to skate until I can't skate anymore, and then I'm going to become a coach and a choreographer, and I, I have this whole plan. And then when I quit skating, it was like I started going through this horrible identity crisis. Esther compares her paralysis in this time to a fig tree. I saw my life branching out before me like the green fig tree in the story, from the tip of every branch, like a fat purple fig. A wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband and a happy home and children, and another fig was a famous poet, and another fig was a brilliant professor— and another fig was E.G., the amazing editor. And another fig was Europe and Africa and South America. And another fig was Constantine and Socrates and Attila. And a pack of other lovers with queer names and offbeat professions. And another fig was an Olympic lady crew champion. And beyond and above these figs were many more figs I couldn't quite make out. I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death just because I couldn't make up my mind which of these figs I would choose. I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest. And as I sat there, unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black, and one by one, they plopped to the ground at my feet. There's so many options in the world, and I think we all fear so much of making the wrong choices and ruining our lives especially when we're 18, 19, 20 years old and we're suddenly thrust into the world and we feel like we're just treading water trying to figure out what's going on. And at the same time, we're expected to make all of these really big life decisions for ourselves. There's so many options out there and there's so many different versions of yourself that you can be. And for some reason, we're expected to make all of these decisions so quickly and so soon in our lives. Another big topic of this book is that of purity. Esther is obsessed with her own purity and what it means to be pure. She ponders on the purity of the body, but also the purity of the mind. She writes, 
When I was 19, pureness was the great issue. I saw the world divided into people who had slept with somebody and people who hadn't. I thought a spectacular change would come over me the day I crossed the boundary line. This makes me chuckle because this is something that I think many people around this age think about. Before I was having sex, but was old enough to like kind of, you know, be curious about it and want it a little bit. You think about sex all the time, especially if you're not having it, you're going to be really curious about it. And then when Esther finally and then when Esther finally does lose her virginity and lose that grip of purity that she has on herself, she realizes that it really isn't that great and nothing changes. Not that sex isn't great. It can be great. Sex for her was bad. <laughs> we'll get into that later. She spent her whole life feeling stifened by the expectations that the people around her have of her because she's a woman. And that's why she held out on having sex for so long anyways. Esther's mother, Mrs. Willard, and her son Buddy all push a very antiquated idea of womanhood onto Esther throughout the book. There's also a lot of hypocrisy discussed in this book as well, because I think this is the time that Esther is growing up and realizing the differences between how men and women are treated. So when Esther finds out that Buddy had cheated on her, she sees the hypocrisy that he holds. She was expected to keep herself pure and virginous for him, but he was allowed to do whatever he wanted sexually without impunity. There's also a very obvious difference in purity between the two friends that Esther makes while in New York, Doreen and Betsy. Betsy is described as a wholesome, all-American type girl from Kansas, and Doreen is a cynical, witty, and sexy daredevil. I see them as being like the angel devil on Esther's shoulder. At first, Esther is more drawn to Doreen, but eventually accepts that she's really more of a Betsy. So let's talk a little bit more about the social structures for women of the time and the heteronormativity that was really pushed upon these women and what that looked like. Because during the time of this book, fears of McCarthyism and the Cold War were at an all-time high, and they were fiercely patriarchal. I learned this term compulsory heterosexuality in my research, which is a notion dependent on the bias that a woman is naturally attracted to men, and a woman must always be defined through a man. Esther struggled with this concept. She didn't know if she saw herself in the role a woman was supposed to take in the 1950s, when women... When women were expected to marry, become homemakers, and raise their children, and nothing else. These ideals are pushed onto her by many of the characters in this book. But now I want to talk a little bit about Dr. Nolan, who changes her ideas about love and relationships. She asks the doctor, What does a woman see in another woman that she can't see in a man? Dr. Nolan's answer is tenderness. This is in contrast with her previous male doctor, Dr. Gordon, who is a symbol of a vicious male-dominated society. Where Dr. Gordon is dismissive, Dr. Nolan is inquisitive. Where Dr. Gordon is deceitful, Dr. Nolan is kind. Dr. Nolan also encourages her to be open about her sexuality and her needs and her desires, which is something that I'm sure she had never heard before. And it seems that maybe she was even accepted by Dr. Nolan a little bit with her understanding of that she really didn't want to have kids and be a wife, which I'm sure, like I keep saying, was very strange for the time. Her distaste for marriage comes from her hatred of the idea of serving a man in any way. She also states that children make her sick and said, if I had to wait on a baby all day, I would go mad. 
And I think even in 2023, a lot of people would have a problem with a woman saying something like this. But in the 1950s, I'm sure Esther felt like an alien. Even though she seems to know what it is she truly wants, she still feels the pressure of resigning herself to the life that society has planned for her. She once told a female poet she admires, I might as well get married and have a pack of children someday. Thankfully, that poet responded in shock, asking what would then happen to her career. Esther decided to choose writing over a family. And this is also encouraged by her temporary boss for the summer, J.C., who encourages Esther to follow her instincts. Both J.C. and the poet were living very avant-garde lifestyles in the 50s, boldly choosing themselves over what society expects of them. Dr. Nolan even goes a step further in liberating Esther by teaching her about birth control. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Esther spent much of the book wary of sex because she didn't want to get pregnant. And learning that she had the ability to feel the pleasures of sex without getting pregnant was life-changing for her, I'm sure. But now, given the liberation to have sex when she pleases, she's disappointed. The particular scene where she and Erwin had sex was really tough for me because it was really, really painful for her. And the way that he was so dismissive of her was just really, really hard to read. And he just made her seem like it was normal, like she had to get over it. When they were finished, Esther began to bleed. And again, she thought it was simply a sign of her purity being tainted, that she was no longer a virgin, that this was normal. But the bleeding didn't stop, and Irwin didn't seem to care. He dropped her off, bleeding, on Joan's doorstep, and Esther is taken to the hospital. Joan is one of the only characters, I feel like, that shows her a lot of true kindness. At least that's her age and one of her peers. Which is funny, because she also slept with Buddy Willard and is kind of the enemy of Esther for most of the book as well. All right, I want to talk a little bit about the role that food plays in this book because it plays a very large role. I just read the whole fig tree quote and there's even more than that. (laughs) Esther says early on in the novel, I'm not sure what it is, but I love food more than just about anything else. No matter how much I eat, I never put on weight. This, to me, shows that there is a lack of connection to her mind and body. She is just able to engorge herself with food and eat, 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 and she's not feeling it. She's not enjoying it. She's not listening to her body. She's just shoving her face with food in the beginning. And then as she descends into her illness more and more, that switches and suddenly she can't eat she can't sleep she can't read or write and her body becomes her total enemy 
And I think it's also a really strong indicator of the joy being sucked out of Esther's life. At the start of the novel, she is experiencing all of these new things in New York and all of this delicious food, but everything turns sour in her life, including the food, it seems. I want to talk a little bit about a comparison to another book, because as I was reading The Bell Jar, I couldn't help but compare the character of Esther Greenwood to another character from another book, Girl Interrupted, by Susanna Kaysen. Girl Interrupted is a memoir, and The Bell Jar is technically not, but it is very autobiographical. And there are a lot of similarities between these two, even something crazy that I never knew before, which is that both of these women were institutionalized, we know that, but they were actually treated at the same hospital, McLean. And apparently they were both treated by this Dr. Nolan. Both of these books are incredibly well-known and stand at the forefront of the representation of mental illness in literature. And these books were pioneers of the genre, long before these kinds of memoirs and stories became common. Both of these stories caused young women to reflect amongst themselves and on their mental stability, as well as lessening the stigma around mental illness. I was super into Girl Interrupted when I was not so well, and that actually became my nickname at my second treatment center. My therapist called me Girl Interrupted because I was just so gloomy and morose all the time and against getting better. Like I said, I was morosely determined to stay sick and unwell. And I actually think that I might have brought the bell jar with me to read in treatment, but they went through all of our books and stuff like that and got rid of anything that would be seen as triggering. And I'm really glad that I waited as long as I did to read this book because I could see myself, you know, really resonating with Esther's character. And I am a very empathetic person, even when reading and watching movies, I could feel, you know, how I could possibly start feeling pretty down myself while being sucked into Esther's world. But if you haven't read Girl Interrupted or seen the movie and it seems like something that you would be able to handle, it wouldn't be triggering, I highly recommend it because I just think that they're both such important examples of what mental health care looked like at certain times and what these women experienced. Let's talk a little bit about the image of the bell jar. Esther describes her life as being suffocated by a bell jar. A bell jar is a thick glass container, sometimes used to create a vacuum space. It stands for Esther's mental suffocation by her depression. Some argue that it represents Esther's rebellion against the 1950s patriarchal structure, and others believe it is about branching out from her suburban, from her suburban lifestyle. Psychiatrist Aaron Beck studied Esther's mental illness and notes two causes of depression that were evident in her life. Much like Sylvia, Esther's father died when she was young and the second could stem from her perfectionist ideologies. Is The Bell Jar a feminist text? I've always considered The Bell Jar, even before reading it, to be a feminist book, but I didn't really know why. I knew about Sylvia Plath and all of her success, as well as her tragic end, and wondered if that could be the reason for its legendary status among women. But as I read the book, one of the most prominent ideas in it is that Esther is on the quest to find her identity. And as a woman of her time period... She broke under the pressure of what was expected of her, being born female versus what she wished for herself and her own life. Just as she's a prisoner to her illness, she feels like a prisoner to a future she does not want for herself. In the book, Esther constantly points out the hypocrisy or double standards between men and women. Instead of accepting these perceived differences, though, she questions and fights against them. 
something I think is inherently feminist. The Bell Jar is the only novel that Sylvia Plath ever wrote. It was initially published under the pseudonym Victoria Lucas in 1963 and was written between 1957 and 1962. In Sylvia's real life, much of the same events from the book happened to her. Let's talk about Sylvia's first mental breakdown and suicide attempt from August of 1953. The New York Times ran an article about how a Smith girl had gone missing. Of course, she was found in her home after a period of two or three days, and in that time she was in a coma, suffering alone, after having attempted to take her own life in the same manner as her character Esther. Here's a clip of Sylvia's mother speaking on her daughter's first breakdown. She came home and that was when she had her breakdown. She couldn't, she couldn't concentrate, she couldn't read, she just uh, wasn't the same girl that went. And that's when she started, well, she, the only thing she read was Freud's abnormal psychology and found all sorts of symptoms that she was sure applied to her and felt that she'd be a burden to the family the rest of her life and uh, couldn't go back and take up her studies at Smith. She just felt she couldn't read or do anything. And uh, when she came to consciousness after her first attempt, the first thing she said, that was my last act of love. She says almost all of this with her eyes closed. Sylvia had become obsessed with reading psychology textbooks by Freud, and she began to self-diagnose herself and convinced herself that her family and everyone around her would be better off without her. Once she was discovered in the crawl space, she was sent to McLean Hospital. Her stay there, as well as her Smith scholarship, were paid for by Olive Higgins Prouty, much like Philomena Guinea in the book, who had also survived a similar breakdown to Sylvia's. She seemed to make a seemingly good recovery and returned to school in January of 1955. She graduated summa cum laude in June of 1955. After that, she got a Fulbright scholarship to study at Newnham College in Cambridge, England. She loved England. She felt like this is where all of her literary heroes had lived, and she really, really loved the atmosphere. It seemed to have helped her recover even more. She also threw herself into student life, publishing more of her work, writing for the school's paper, taking part in the theater department, and even dabbling in modeling. In one campus publication, the headline read, Sylvia Plath tours the stores, and she modeled the new spring fashions. And she really is gorgeous. She wanted to be both a beautiful film star like Betty Grable and a deep thinker like Yates. In February of 1956, she met poet Ted Hughes. It is said that Ted had an enormous influence on her work. They met at a party in Cambridge, England. She had read some of his poems before and was very impressed by them and really wanted to meet him. They began writing poems to each other back and forth, and their romance quickly blossomed. I'd never be writing as I am and and as much as I am without Ted's understanding and cooperation, really. All the poems that we wrote to each other and about each other were really before our marriage. And then something happened. I don't know what it was. I, I hope it was all for the good. But we began to be able to, well, somehow free ourselves for other subjects. It is said that he really helped her find her own voice. They had a whirlwind romance, and the two were married just a couple of months after meeting. All the while, they would write poems to each other back and forth. It's so beautiful. 
they honeymooned in Spain. After marrying Ted, who was an animal lover, she began beekeeping, something her father was also very into in his life. If you'll remember, he wrote a book all about bumblebees, and this was a way for her to feel more attached to her dad. She also wrote a lot of poems about bees after this, and bees always related back to her father. The poems also had a lot to do with fertility and childbirth. When she had her daughter, Frida, on April 1st, 1960, my grandma's birthday, both little April fools, she worried that she would lose her personal identity and time for herself, but she was pleased that her daughter also seemed to have that independent streak that she had. She was like, hey, I can be a writer and a mom and do all these amazing things. Sylvia and Ted went back to America in 1960, and she taught for a year at Smith College. But then the couple found that it wasn't the right fit for them, and they returned to London. When they returned, their marriage began to deteriorate. In 1961, Sylvia became pregnant again, but unfortunately lost the child to miscarriage. It was later revealed in a letter to her therapist that Ted had beaten her just two days before the miscarriage occurred, and it seems like she blames him for it. Ted was not a great guy. A brilliant writer, but a real fucking asshole. After her miscarriage, she wrote many, many poems regarding the loss that she felt. The next year, in 1962, their son Nicholas was born. In May of that year, Sylvia and Ted hosted friends, Canadian poet David Wevel and his wife, Asia Wevel, for a weekend in their home in England. As Ted would later write in a poem, it was then that the dreamer in me fell in love with her. A few weeks later, Ted and Asia began an affair. A few weeks after the affair began, Ted and Sylvia took a trip to Ireland. On the fourth day there, suddenly, Ted disappeared, leaving Sylvia completely alone. He had traveled to London to meet with Asia, and the two embarked on a 10-day trip through Spain, where, if you'll remember, Ted and Sylvia had honeymooned. When he returned, Sylvia was furious, obviously knowing a little bit of what was going on, but Ted refused to end his affair with Asia. Sylvia's mental health had also began to decline again during this time, and in June of 1962, Sylvia made her second attempt on her life by driving her car off the side of the road into a river. Sylvia and Ted separated in July of 1962, before their youngest son was even a year old. The years of 1962 and 1963 would be considered gloomy for Sylvia, as her mental well-being began to suffer further and further. She was now a single mother to a baby son and a toddler daughter. On top of that, the winter that year was the coldest it had been in 100 years, and in this new little flat that she got for her family of three, the pipes froze, which left them cold and sick often. However dim this time was, though, Sylvia wrote furiously. She wrote many, many poems, and she also wrote her one and only novel, The Bell Jar. In January 1963, the same month that The Bell Jar was published, she reached out to John Holder, her general practitioner and a close friend of hers. She described to him the depressive state that she had been in for the last six to seven months, she was marked by constant agitation, suicidal thoughts, and an inability to cope with her daily life. She struggled with insomnia, taking medication to help her sleep, and all of this caused her to lose 20 pounds during this time. 
Porter prescribed her with an antidepressant and made sure to visit her daily to make sure that she and the children were all right. Seeing how badly she was, though, he tried his best to cajole her to go to a hospital, and when she refused, he arranged for her to have a live-in nurse. On the morning of February 11, 1963, the nurse arrived at the Plath flat to begin her day of work. Upon her arrival, she found that she couldn't get into the home, but eventually gained access with the help of a workman nearby. The nurse walked in to see Sylvia with her head in the oven, with the kitchen having been sealed off between her and her sleeping children with tape, towels, and clothing. Sylvia had died. She was only 30 years old. There has been much speculation as to Sylvia's intentions and motivations that day, but Horder believed it was clear. He said, No one who saw the care with which the kitchen was prepared could have interpreted her action as anything but an irrational compulsion. Many believe it was an unanswered cry for help. Some believe that the antidepressants given to her two days before her death could have been the cause of it, but it takes a while for those types of medication to actually work in the body. She and Ted had been separated for six months, but he was absolutely devastated by her death. Before her death, she published a work of poems titled Double Exposure. Then in 1965, a posthumous publication of Ariel was released. In 1975, her mother edited and selected a number of journal entries and letters that Sylvia had written and published them. It was called Letters Home, Correspondence 1950-1963. Her adult diaries, particularly from her days at Smith, were published in 1982 as the Journals of Sylvia Plath, with Ted as a consulting editor. Ted passed away while working on putting together a more complete collection of her writing, and the project was passed down to his children. The book was published in 2000 as the Unabridged Journals of Sylvia Plath. Ted would face criticism for his role in handling the journals, though, as he claimed to have destroyed Sylvia's last journal, which contained entries from 1962 until her death, for the sake of her children. Don't destroy them. Just, like, hide them away or put a trigger warning sticker on it. Like, it just breaks my heart. In the years since, more and more has been revealed about Sylvia and Ted's relationship. In 1977, feminist scholar Harriet Rosenstein spent years working on a complete biography of Sylvia, and in doing so collected her psychiatric records, autopsy report, and hundreds of hours of interviews with people who knew her. The full book was never published, but in 2017, she put up the most valuable parts of her archives up for sale. And these archived items revealed more about the abuse that Sylvia endured during her marriage to Ted. After Sylvia's death, their children moved in with Ted, and they had to live with him and Asiya, who was pregnant at the time with their child. And Asiya did not seem to be doing well, as she appeared to be haunted by Ted's deceased wife, even using items that had once belonged to Sylvia. In 1965, she gave birth to a daughter, Alexandria. But Asiya became anxious and suspicious of Ted's possible infidelities, I don't blame her, And he did begin having affairs with multiple other women, so she wasn't so paranoid she was right. (laughs) On March 23, 1969, Asiya killed herself and her four-year-old Alexandria. The way in which she ended her life exactly mirrored that of Sylvia Plath. As for Sylvia's children, Frida took after her parents and became a writer, but she also took after her namesake and became a painter. She published seven children's books, 
four books of poetry, and one short story. She's been married thrice, but never had children, and she's now 63 years old and enjoys rescuing, keeping, and painting owls. Her brother Nicholas became a fisheries biologist and an expert in stream salmonoid ecology. From 1984 to 1991, he worked in Fairbanks, Alaska as a research assistant at the Alaska Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unity. He got his Ph.D. in biology in 1991. However, Nicholas also suffered from the same mental illnesses as his mother, and in December of 2006, he took his own life. I just think this whole story is so unbelievably sad. And as I read about Sylvia's life, I just can't help but wonder if she was around today, if she could have gotten the help that she obviously so desperately needed. I feel like no matter what, this would have happened to her. She was a gentle, sensitive, emotional, insightful, curious person. And I think that those types of people are often most susceptible to having those sorts of depression and behaviors. It just seems like her life was just so, so hard. But at the same time, she was so fucking successful and she was so talented that it's such a shame that she couldn't have stayed with us a bit longer. That is everything that I have for you on the Bell Jar and Sylvia Plath. I know there was so much more in some of my old notes and stuff that I just couldn't access. So I hope that this episode is good enough. For all of you. I love The Bell Jar. I give it a 10 out of 10. I'm so glad this was the final book that I decided to do for the book club. All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode. And remember, there is more like that on patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist. And another great way to support the show is by going to your Apple podcast app and leaving a five star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show and also rating the show on Spotify. I'll see you later this week for the mini What's in the News episode. And then starting next week, Black History Month. I'll see you then. But that is all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.